Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. Good to see you all. Thank you, Abby. I text Abby, would you like to do the scripture reading? Sure. You can sense the nervousness in her text, Uh, but thank you. Hopefully she's not running off crying. Um, (laughs) Well, uh, today is the fourth Sunday of Lent. We've got one more Sunday in Lent before we hit Palm Sunday, which starts Holy Week. So, uh, this passage that we're looking at this morning is quite well known. I think even people outside of the church have heard the term prodigal son. And so as Holy Week draws nearer, we're going to continue to seek to create space in our lives for God. And so whether you're partaking uh, in some sort of fast in turning to him, to depend on him, and and then rather than looking for hope or meaning, value, or joy in things apart from him, uh, we're actually turning to him to be filled by him. Instead of looking outward, we're looking upward. Instead of going one way, we're trying to turn towards the way of Jesus. And now while this is a regular part of life, this turning, this constant repentance that we uh, have to partake as Jesus followers. The Lenten season in particular affords us such opportunities. And so this morning's sermon, it's going to be a little different. I'll be honest with you, a lot of this isn't my words. Um, Mainly, and and we'll get into why, uh, but I will attribute them. Uh, But I think uh, there's just people in my life that I trust far more than um, the little bit of wisdom God's given me in my couple decades of life. Um, for this topic, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust them and uh, consult them. I do want to preface and <laughs> forgive my uh, minimal energy. I made the wonderful mistake of going to a Cavs game with my brothers-in-laws last night. Didn't realize it started at 8, and uh, it was a long one, and the calls just kept going, and it was, yeah, the last minute lasted an hour, it seemed like. Anyway, so I'm not 29 anymore. I'm 30, so I'm starting to feel it. Don't have the energy. So, Daryl, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. So, uh, so forgive my, you know, I'm not that most energetic guy. Anyways, uh, anyways, so much of my content this morning is going to be attributed to a few key voices in my life. I don't know the first couple. Um, but I feel like I knew them well just because of their books. Uh, So the first two books I'm going to recommend for this topic, if you guys want to dig into the prodigal son parable, Timothy Keller's Prodigal God and Henry Nouwen's The Return of the Prodigal Son. And then aside from that, we will get into some practicality. So the first chunk, we're going to break down the passage, but then we're going to actually get into the topics of confession and forgiveness and actually how to practically do that and In order to do that, I'm going to reference much of my own counselor and our family counselors, uh, this husband and wife couple, um, their resources. 
And so their names are Glenn and Susie Johnson. I got their permission from the, for, to utilize much of their resources. Um, but the summary of it is in your bulletin uh, for the two um, components that we're going to look at in the second half of the message, just so you know. So if you didn't get a bulletin, well, there's a couple more. Or if you'd like them, I can send them to you as well. So to preface, before we start walking through the passage, a couple key interesting pieces of information for us regarding this parable of the prodigal son. While it's often referred to as a parable of the prodigal son, that word's not in the passage at all. Um, it doesn't say anything about a, the prodigal son. Um, it's just kind of been thrown in there from what we inserted later on in church history as headers. It's a recent thing, the past maybe 100 years, the, church, the headers. If you look at your own Bible translations, most of them refer to them as the parable of the lost son or the tale of the lost son. Most Bible translations do that. The ESV in particular is, I think, the only one that calls it the prodigal son. Uh, the NRSV calls it the prodigal and his brother, noting I like that a little more because there are two brothers in this story. I actually think the common English Bible gives you, I don't like headers, I'll, I'll just own that, I don't like them, but if I were to like them, the common English Bible gives you a great header where the whole chapter is just titled Occasions for Celebration. Because Jesus is really, if you notice, we jumped past two parables. When Abby read, she jumped, from, uh, skipped four through ten, which Jesus is telling three stories back to back to back to the Pharisees. And so because of this, an important part of the parable is often overlooked because we know it as the parable of the prodigal son. And that's the other son. That's the older brother as well. There's two brothers here, and we're going to try and look at both. So let's begin by walking through the passage. So we're just going to, first point, really isn't a point, just a subject header, the lost sons and their forgiving father. So let's walk through. Starting in verse 1, all the tax collectors, sinners, were coming near to listen to him. Now these people, um, they're, they're coming in to eat a meal with Jesus. This is pretty provocative. I think if we, as we've heard before, that Jesus is, you know, God incarnate is coming and hanging out with sinners. And then in verse 2, it says this, the Pharisees and the scribes, these religious leaders, these pious people, people who are known for their holiness and their religious observance, they were grumbling and saying, this fellow, this guy, he's welcoming sinners, and he eats with them. Why is this a big deal? Welcoming and, and, and not only just talking to someone, but eating with someone conveyed a deep uh, sense of intimacy and acceptance. And so the fact that Jesus is not only just having a casual conversation, he's sitting down and dining with them, is a big deal. And so, rabbis in that day, as Jesus at this point was known as, uh, it wouldn't even teach said type of people, sinners or tax collectors. Tax collectors being Jewish people who have betrayed their fellow countrymen, their fellow Jewish people, and worked with the state, worked with Rome to overtax their own people, and they're earning money off of their own people's backs. They're kind of seen as traitors. Rabbis in that day would not even consult them. They would not teach them. 
That's how looked down upon they were. And this Jesus is sitting down with them. He's going to dine with them. And so, notice here, well, two things. Just if you, in this section, the, uh, the headers are going to be helpful for us. That there's two parables prior to the prodigal son or the lost sons, whatever you want to call it. Both of which are about someone seeking something that is lost. Passionately, actively seeking something that is lost. But the other more important thing for us to note is that as this is happening, that verse 3, so he told them this parable. The question we have to ask is, who is them? Who is Jesus talking to primarily? He's talking to the religious people. He's talking to the Pharisees, primarily. And we tend to apply this story more from the sense of the prodigal side. Uh, but the reality is, Jesus is starting, first and foremost, primary audience is actually to the people that might resonate more with the elder brother. So let's jump down to verse 11. That's where the story begins. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the term parable, um, it is kind of this Christianese word. Not a lot of people use this outside of the church. Parable, um, the best way I've heard it, and I don't actually know who this is. I just quoted it, but I don't know who to attribute this to. Forgive me. Um, yeah, I, I've heard it summarized as an earthly story with heavenly implications. Uh, it's cute. Sounds nice. I'm not sure how accurate that is, but I... I the sense is that we don't take everything in a parable and say there's a one-for-one -one correlation for us to apply every single thing. There's more just one deeper meaning, and the main focus here is the father and his forgiveness for his sons, his actively seeking his sons. So, looking at verse 11, Jesus says to these people, he continues another parable to the Pharisees, saying there's, there's this man, he had two sons. The younger of them told his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. Now, this sounds kind of weird. Uh, it's, it's a different culture in that day. But predominantly in the ancient Near East, uh, our wealth, our status, our security, our job, our vocation was wrapped into our family lineage. We still see some of that today. Um, but for the most part, even as last names started becoming a thing, someone with the last name of Shoemaker, it's likely that in their family lineage, they were a family of shoemakers. It started becoming a last name thing. Back then, we didn't have last names uh, because there probably weren't a lot of Tylers or Ryans or Johns. Um, what? <laughs> Why are you laughing? Sorry, my wife's laughing at me. Um, but anyways, there weren't a lot of them. But your identity was wrapped up in your vocation and your family's vocation, your family's calling in your community. And with that came your inheritance. And so for both of these young men, since there's two of them, the older one would be entitled to two-thirds of the wealth, two-thirds of the inheritance, and the younger son would be entitled to one-third. And so what the father does here, he obliges. He, he gives his son what he's requesting. But what he's really saying to his father is essentially, um, what I would receive when you pass, I want it now. Essentially, forget you. I want you gone. I want your stuff. I want what I can get from you. 
So, in verse 13, it says, A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had. He traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. We can imagine what that looks like, but drunken debauchery, uh, sexual promiscuity, all these different things, just living it up with no care in the world. Continues in verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. We get the sense that this has been going on for a while. He's, he's exhausted all of his wealth like a trust fund kid, except simultaneously he's had this, you know, this poor thing happen to him, two disasters, but one of them self-imposed. The other is there's a large famine. And so he's in need. He's got nothing left. He's at dead end. In verse 15, Jesus continues, He went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. This is a big deal, feeding the pigs. Um, there was a rabbinic saying back then, cursed be the man who would breed, breed swine. I mean, if you're unfamiliar with this, pigs are seen as very... Yeah, no, not for Jewish culture. This is a, he's at a very low here to go work with and feed the pigs. Continuing on, he would gladly have filled himself with the pods of the pigs that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough, uh, have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. Notice that his sin in particular is against his father. He has hurt his father. His wrongdoing is not something that only affects him, it is something that has affected his father primarily and his family. Continues on in verse 20, the man sets off, he went back to his father, but while he was still far off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion. There's this phrase that occurs a few times in Luke that he is filled with compassion or Jesus has compassion on someone hurting there's some similarities there. It says the father ran to him, put his arms around him, and kissed him. He sees him at a distance. He has compassion on him. He runs, and he kisses him. These are very, again, cultural things that we don't necessarily understand today, but for a wealthy uh, patriarch in a family to do this, to initiate, to run, to go to someone rather than them come to them is a big deal. Then in 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, I don't know if you've seen the movie Jerry Maguire. Have we? Have we seen the movie Jerry Maguire? A few of us. I get this uh, a few years ago. I, I would teach uh, my youth uh, a class on, uh, we call it Pop Jesus, uh, Christianity and Culture. And it was so funny. One of my middle schoolers, I think, brought the movie Jerry Maguire, which I believe is from the early 90s, young Tom Cruise. And uh, if you're familiar with the scene, it's been, 
it's been uh, mocked a lot or, or parodied a lot. But you know, at the end, Jerry's messed up with his girl, and, and he goes to the door of her apartment, and, and she cracks open the door, and she like will barely listen to him, and he's like apologizing, and like, I'm sorry, and I did all this, and blah, blah, blah. And she finally says, shut up. Shut up. You had me at hello. They, do we know this scene? We've probably heard this. And it's so ridiculous. It's over the top. But it is this, it, it, rightfully so, the students found like, that was kind of like the prodigal son. I was shocked that a middle schooler could come up with this. But it was a great, like, it, the forgiveness of the girl for Tom Cruise's character was not based on even just the explanation. It was just the fact that he came back, that he turned towards him. Even his, his words were, were rambled. And similarly, hello. Hi. Yeah, we... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> similarly here, you get this sense that the son has come. He's starting to give off this explanation to his father. And the father is already like, let's get the party going. He's back. I don't need to hear your explanation. You're back. You've turned back to me. In verse 22, the father is telling the slaves, quickly bring out the robe, the best one. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Get the fatted calf. Kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. These things, giving him a robe, it's the symbol of a higher position, a higher place, the ring a symbol of authority now being returned as being a son, no longer someone who is off in a distant land. He is part of my household again. Again, very symbolic um, gestures here in the ancient Near East. So that's the first son. That's the younger son. There's a lot going on there. But now we turn. This is why I like it being called the Lost Sons or headers that refer to both of them, because about half of it refers to another brother. In verse 25, the elder son's in the field, and he comes, he comes back from working, he hears music and dancing, there's this party going on, he calls one of the slaves, he asks, what's going on, why is there a party? Verse 27, the slave replies, your brother has come back, and your father, in light of this, has, fat, has killed the fattened calf. The celebratory calf that would likely feed the whole village in this time when you do this. That means this is a town party. That is Dover gathering together to live it up because someone's kid is back. It says, because he got him back safe and sound. But verse 28, how does the brother respond? He becomes angry, refuses to go in. He's sitting outside the party. He's kind of, you get this feeling of a this picture of a, uh, a kid kicking and moaning, not getting his way. And yet he's the older one. His father comes out to him now, too. Notice the father comes out again, out of the household, out of his place. He goes to him again. And he begs him, come back. Come into the party. Join us. But what happens? The older brothers, with an exclamation point, you don't see that much in the scriptures, says, listen, for all these years, I've been working like a slave for you. 
I've never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. You've, let me, you've never let me have even just like a small get-together, let alone this, this feast, this celebration that you've just put on for my brother. Verse 30, well, actually, he doesn't say my brother. He says, but when this son of yours came back, notice that he doesn't call him his brother. You get this, derog- yeah, but this son of yours, you know, it's kind of this condescending tone to his father who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. He's saying, what gives? He says, I slaved for you. Notice that when he says, I slaved for you, this is language not of a son, but as a worker for his dad. He's not, he's starting to show his cards a little bit of how he's viewed his relationship to his father. Not so much as father's son, but as worker, slave, worker, indentured servant. That if I do this, when you drop, I'm going to get two-thirds of your stuff. His cards are showing. His heart is surfacing for us. But the father says in verse 31, Son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate. We had to rejoice. This brother of yours was dead, and he's come back to life. He was lost, and he was found. He has been found. You see this self-righteousness coming through in the elder brother. Uh, Minister Timothy Keller writes, Jesus does not divide the world into the normal good guys and the immoral bad guys. He shows us that everyone, everyone, is dedicated to a project of self-salvation, to using God and others in order to get power and control for themselves. We are just going about it different ways. Even though both sons are wrong, however, the Father cares for them and invites them both back into His love and feast. Keller continues, do you realize then what Jesus is teaching? Neither son loved the father for himself. They both were using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, serving him for his own sake. It was never about the father. It was what the father could give him. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them diligently. It's a shocking message. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. The tricky thing here for us, and I think the warnings in the Gospels from Jesus tend to be more towards elder brothers than younger brothers. Because the younger brother, their sin is more apparent, right? Their need is more apparent. It's the elder brothers that tend to lean more pharisaical, tend to lean more religious. I've got my, I've built my status. Here's my spiritual stats. Here's my accolades, God. Here I am. Aren't we good? 
Didn't I do enough? But that's still missing the point. The elder brother here, just like the Pharisees, are doing things to earn a place before God. Similarly, theologian Frederick Buchner writes, the fatted calf, the best scotch, the hoedown could all have been his too any time he asked for them except that he never thought to ask for them because he was too busy trying cheerlessly and religiously to earn them. The elder brother was not trying to serve the God or serve his father but to do things for his father that his father might serve him that his father might give him what he wants. There's a couple key notes here for the younger and older brother. These are coming from uh, N.T. Wright's observations on this passage. That for the younger son, when he's welcomed home, there's this symbolism similar to the Jewish people being welcomed in out of exile. They're welcomed back from Babylon. But even more so, there's this resurrection language. He says he was, he was dead, but now he's alive, right? He's he was gone, now he's found. This return from exile, it's happening there now in their place, he's saying. And, and literally, he's, he's telling this parable to these Pharisees who are, they're upset that these sinners and tax collectors are coming to dine with the Messiah. He's sitting down, they're sitting down with King Jesus and they're mad because they're unclean, right? They're mad because their life doesn't look religiously pious. If anything, it's pretty obvious. It's the people that society often looks down upon, in particular religious folk, people involved in church. We tend to, probably, if we're honest, turn a negative eye towards them. But Jesus is saying, no, this is happening now. This will happen, but this is happening now in your place. People are coming back to life. Resurrection life, kingdom life is coming here and now, and you're upset that I'm letting them in the party. Meanwhile, again, for them, they are not in that moment coming into the, the feast with Jesus in that moment. They are the elder brother in the story. But for the older son, similarly, the critics, they were so focused on the wickedness of sinners and tax collectors, they couldn't see the glimmers, the pockets of hope, the pockets of the kingdom breaking in. They saw so much of the negative, so much of the old way, they couldn't see resurrection life, they couldn't see the flowers budding. They couldn't see spring arising up. And he writes said, whenever a work of God goes powerfully forwards, there is always someone muttering in the background that things aren't that easy, that God's got no right to be generous, that people who've done nothing wrong are being overlooked. Now we may not honestly say that, but in our hearts, if we really got down and did some work a couple hours in a room with a Christian counselor, you might be like, oh, that's what's down there in our heart. We're upset that something's going well for them. Meanwhile, I've done three decades in the church. I've done this, and my family's got this problem going on, or I lost so-and-so. Why is their life looking better? 
Or why are they praising and celebrating that person coming home when I've been here all along? I've never gotten a party. Do you, do you hear who we're making it about? It's not about God there. It's about us when we have that posture. So he throws a fit in front of the guests. He lectures his dad. And this, similarly, the Pharisees are doing the same thing and they have no idea. You get a sense that they have no idea what's going on here. That, oh, shoot, we're that person. And so with that, with summarizing the story that way, we're going to look at confessing beautifully and forgiving sin beautifully. These are terms that my Christian counselor refers to. Something that I've been working on for a couple years with him and I'm very elementary in, and that's again why I am consulting him and his wife a lot in this next section. But particularly I want to look at this because in the Lenten season, one, we are to be turning to God. How do we turn to God? Well, that is a repentance, and part of repentance is, one key component of repentance is confession. We turn and we own things. And sometimes that's confession vertically, sometimes it involves confession horizontally with one another. Now confession in general, I think in Protestantism, like a lot of things, because of the Protestant Reformation, we've kind of gotten away from the practice of confession a little bit. Or we've sort of been like, oh, that's Roman Catholic. We're Protestant. Let's do the opposite. It's like, well, no. Confession is, is a real thing. It's in the scriptures. It's encouraged by Jesus' little brother James, among other apostles. And so I want to share with us some practical ways that um, my counselor has done a lot of work in this um, theologically and, and um, as to how, to how confession actually works, how to actually do that. Because up until this point, I, I didn't really understand what confession looked like. I thought it was just, hey, God, I messed up. Hey, I did this. But there's actually a lot more power to going through a, a, a key process. So, um, but he calls it confessing beautifully. Henry Nouwen says, I am the prodigal son every time I search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. And regarding the younger son in us, Nouwen continued, although claiming my true identity as a child of God, I still live as though the God to whom I'm returning demands an explanation. I still think about his love as conditional and about home as a place I am not yet fully sure of. While walking home, I keep entertaining doubts about whether I will truly be welcomed when I get there. As I look at my spiritual journey, my long and fatiguing trip home, I see how full it is of guilt about the past and worries about the future. I realize my failures and know that I have lost that, the dignity of my sonship but I am not yet able to fully believe that where my failings are great, grace is always greater. Still clinging to my sense of worthlessness, I project for myself a place far below that which belongs to the Son. How often we come maybe even to church or when we're apologizing to someone, confessing to someone, asking for forgiveness, we're trying to find little ways to justify ways to be crafty, similar to that of the serpent, and maybe downplay some of the things that we've done. 
and even discredit the cross of Christ because we think we've got to come to God with not as low as we truly are. And then regarding the elder son in us, Nowen writes, the more I reflect on the elder son in me, the more I realize how deeply rooted this form of lostness really is and how hard it is to return home from there. Returning home from a lustful escapade seems so much easier than returning home from a cold anger that has rooted itself in the deepest corners of my being. My resentment is not something that can be easily distinguished and dealt with rationally. It is far more pernicious, something that has attached itself to the underside of my virtue. This is key. Isn't it good to be obedient, dutiful, law-abiding, hardworking, and self-sacrificing? And still, it seems that my resentments and complaints are mysteriously tied to such praiseworthy attitudes. This connection often makes me despair. At the very moment I want to speak or act out of my most generous self, I get caught in anger or resentment. And it seems that just as I want to be more selfless, I find myself obsessed about being loved. Just when I do my utmost to accomplish a task well, I find myself questioning why others don't give themselves just as I do. Just when I think I am capable of overcoming my temptations, I feel envy towards those who gave in to theirs. It seems that wherever my virtuous self is, there also is the resentful complainer. And that's the trouble for us when we resonate, relate with the elder brother more. The sin is much more insidious. I like the the dark corners of our soul illustration there. You don't see it as much. It's not that evident. And even it's tied to the underbelly that, yeah, there's this good thing, but underneath the surface, there's, there could be a little bit more there when we're rooting our righteousness in our own works rather than doing good, loving, following the way of Jesus in light of what Jesus did. And that's it. Not to earn our place before God. So as we get into the confession component, the questions we want to ask ourselves is, who are we in the story? Where, where do you find yourself in the parable? Younger, older. Most likely, a lot of us tend to relate more with elder, but I think we can fluctuate depending on seasons of life. And there's a third character, but we'll get to that. But finding yourself there will be helpful. With Lent being a time to intentionally turn from and turn back to God, a time to declutter that we may be filled with the bread of life. It's a great opportunity for talk, to talk about repentance and confession. So, um, what is confession? This is the definition from my counselor. He calls it wholehearted confession. It says, we confess beautifully when we wholeheartedly agree with God about our sin. Foundational to believing, uh, foundational to beautiful confessing is feeling what we should feel, thinking what we should think, and wanting what we should want. Confession, according to Karl Barth, is the outward expression to others of the, of the inner admission to oneself that one was in thought, word, attitude, motive, or deed. One was wrong, sorry, in thought, word, attitude, motive, or deed. It's a verbal admission of wrongdoing made in the presence of the wronged party. So, 
Here's the steps. Um, he's got nine. I'll, I'll jump through them. First one, these are in your bulletin again. So first thing he says on how to confess beautifully. I should say they, because it, it is Glenn and Susie. First thing is to accurately name the sin. And sometimes this can be to someone else, but perhaps sometimes we're not able to actually confess or ask for forgiveness from the party we've harmed. There's certain circumstances of that sort. But in general, at least to God, accurately name the sin. So he's saying identify the name that God ascribes your sin. Don't just like downplay it or call it something else. The purpose here is to actually see our sin clearly and call it what God calls it. Call it what it is. The reason being is that we tend to downplay our sin. We tend to... And here's an example. He, they say to call it adultery, not an affair. Because that's what Scripture calls it. Say, I lied, not that I messed up. Or, I partook in sexual immorality, not that I watched porn. Those are, those are different things, but that's what is said in the scriptures. And this is important. We'll get to, to why. Or that hurt my pride or shame, not that that hurt my feelings. What did that hurt in you? Or what did you hurt in them? Next step, he says, is get to the details. Tell the truth. The purpose here is to take responsibility appropriately. appropriately. We can't do that unless we actually own the particulars of what we did. So don't generalize or omit. Um, omit. Own our sin without blaming. So he says avoid minimizing or blaming techniques. And he's got a couple key examples here. So, quote, when I spoke, I was rude and gross, not I was tired and I wasn't myself. No, he would say, early on when I would try and confess like that, he's like, no, you were being yourself. That was who you are, your old self in Christ. The Holy Spirit is making you new, but that was part of who you are. Don't try and diminish it. Say what you were. At the time, I said, I hate you. I meant what I said, but I don't feel that way now. Not, I didn't really mean it. No, you did mean it. Own it. Own what was going on in our heart. That's the way we actually start to see change and growth is when we start addressing sin for what it is. Addressing the dark crevices of our soul for what they are. Last example, I lost my will to take my pain to God and then, full of self-pity, I numbed my pain with alcohol, pornography, food, shopping, etc. Instead of, you made me feel bad or, or I wasn't feeling, I was in a bad mood, so I went and did this. No, say, say what was happening, why you went there. Gets to the, it, it, you see how it gets to some work. This is why uh, counseling sessions are like an hour <laughs> rather than, uh, hey, I'm sorry, can you forgive me? No, because it's, that's staying at the surface. We need to get down low. What was going on in our hearts, and how did that in turn dig a hole into their heart, perpetuate their heart? The third one, he says, get to the motives. Confess both the details and the motives. The goal here is to actually incriminate yourself. Usually we want to plead our innocence. It's like, no, 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 we, we want to get to that part. We want to incriminate our sin there. Again, another example, I spoke that way because I wanted to hurt you because at the time I saw you as my enemy, not I would never want to hurt you. No, because if we're honest, we, we did want to hurt them in that moment. Getting, try, and this takes some soul work. This takes some, again, this 
like the Lenten season, spending time opening up, spending time with God, asking God, hey, what was going on in my heart here? Let's take some journaling and prayer. The next two are pretty quick. Unfitting emotions. Name the unfitting emotions that were controlling you, and similarly, wrong beliefs. Name the wrong beliefs that governed how you acted. So I was believing that blank would fill that void or it would fulfill that longing that I had. Well, yeah, what was that belief? I went to that instead of God. Or I went to that. I thought that would be uh, similarly, like we saw a few weeks ago, the, the temptations of Jesus, turning to things other than the bread of life, turning to things other than the water of life. How were you turning to that instead of God? How are you turning to that instead of the means by which God gave you to, to find satisfaction? Number six says, acknowledge the pain you cause the persons. This is very hard for me. I'm not very empathetic. Um, some of you have known this. And some of you, when you've shared things with me, <laughs> I've owned. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I need a few minutes to like, get there. Because I just I have a hard time sometimes. Um, Sometimes my, my, my instinct is, why is this bothering you so much? Like, can't you get over it? If I'm honest, I did. And maybe some of you feel that way too. So I have to do that work. Some of us, if you relate with me, it takes some work. There's other people like my wife that are like more empathy than anyone I know. They're just like, oh my gosh. I'm like, what? How do you care for that? Um, <laughs> like, oh my gosh, you're too, you're too nice. Um, so, some of us has to have to do the work to get there. This is a hard one for me. Acknowledge the pain you cause the persons. This usually is the longest step for me. So, in here, the Johnsons write, specify the pain and suffering you caused others. Or, if you don't understand it, well, you, you vocalize that to them. Hey, in this, when I did this, I caused this pain to you. And you ask, am I, am I conveying what I did to you, what you felt? Or... And if they correct you, you humbly listen. Learn what pain you cause them. Ask if you don't understand. Or help me see. Can you help me see the pain I caused you? Often, they say we foolishly beat around the bush trying to ease the pain. One word sentence. Don't. Don't do that. The purpose here is to demonstrate our awareness of how we ruptured the relationship. So the question to ask is, what was it like for you when you caught me or learned that I was looking at that porn site? Not, I'm sorry if that made you feel badly. See the difference? You're actually letting them speak. You're giving them the freedom to share because, hey, I did something against you. You now have the right to tell me what that did to you. And there's some questions here directly in line with the prodigal son's repentance here. With his desire as he's trying to conjure up ways to repent and seek forgiveness and reconciliation with his father. Glenn and Susie wrote, what needs to happen for us to quote-unquote come to our senses? What is beautiful about quote, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son? What is beautiful about quote, make me like one of your hired servants? What emotions are appropriate when we come to our senses? What thoughts are appropriate? What desires are appropriate? It's getting down to how, because of our sin, 
apart from Jesus, we broke that. It is broken. Because we're not the ones who make the men's. That's, that's the gospel truth. That's the reality. That's why relationships and, and institutions and so, that, so forth are so broken in the world because without the amends, resurrection life of Jesus, it's impossible to make true men's. So letting our brokenness be its brokenness, how did we do this? How did we get here? But then we get to point seven. Acknowledge that your sin necessitated Christ's atoning death. Admit that your actions... Your beliefs, your emotions, your desires, they put Christ on the cross. Jesus paid the price for your behavior, your beliefs, your desires, your emotions. This is literally applying the atonement of Jesus to yourself. This is, I found this to be um, healing, restorative for me, but as well, the confessor, as well as for the person being confessed to. But it's also just ridding you of that shame that knowing you have grace, you have forgiveness, you will have new life in Jesus. And the last two, plan to become virtuous. Prepare a plan to overcome your sin issue. As you plan like this, you are more likely to follow through and demonstrate fruit in keeping with repentance. Um, we know this just from like any New Year's resolution or anything we do, right? Say, hey, I'm going to go do this, and then if you don't have a plan, you're not going to do it, right? I mean, it's, it's very rare. Um, having a plan, we know, we document this in social science, we understand that plans help us. They're not a foolproof thing, but they do help us uh, aspire to that goal. Similarly, we are to aspire after Jesus in light of his life, death, and resurrection. Not to earn our place before him, but because of that atoning death. Notice that's why it comes after the atoning death of Jesus. The Johnsons say, as you plan like this, you are more likely to follow through. You can demonstrate genuine repentance by talking about how you plan to do things differently. So when they've had me like confess to either my wife or my daughter, I usually have to come to some sort of, hey, this is, these are a couple things that Glenn and I have come to, to, to how to um, try to live into the virtues of Jesus in this area that, that will hopefully change the way I act towards you. These tend to be like the fruit of the Spirit, if you're unfamiliar, compassion, courage, empathy, faithfulness, gentleness, and so on. And then the last one, ask for forgiveness. He says, ask the person you sinned against to forgive you without demanding or pressuring. This is key. They don't have to forgive you. That's not on you. You can't demand that. that if anything, that kind of makes it hard, especially if they're not a, a Jesus follower. But we can't change someone else's hearts. We just have to do our part in confession. We have to do what we can to make things right. But we cannot demand someone, you have to forgive me. He uses the quote, I hope that you will be able to forgive me or will you please forgive me, not you have to forgive me. That was a lot. I've been doing this for a couple years. Not very good at it. It's a lot. But if you want, if you are interested in learning how to confess beautifully, I've got his packet, their packet. It's a 20-page document, but a lot of which is like scripture references and, 
and uh, for some of the virtues as well as some of the different sins that we partake in. <clears throat> if you'd like it, I can definitely give that to you. Uh, they have given me that permission. But it is something that it is work to confess. Um, it's work to get to a place of confessing, seeking forgiveness. And then the last thing here, forgiving beautifully. This one's a lot quicker. Um, Soren Kierkegaard wrote, Never cease loving a person and never give up hope for him, for even the prodigal son who had fallen most low could still be saved. The bitterest enemy and also he who was your friend could again be your friend. Love that has grown cold can kindle. And Tim Keller writes, it's impossible to forgive someone if you feel superior to him or her. To truly become Christians, we must also repent of the reasons we ever did anything right. So, the goal here, the reason why we're talking about forgiving beautifully, um, now and at the end, towards the end of his book, On the Prodigal Son, shows the third character. He says, I now see that the hands that forgive, console, heal, and offer a festive meal must become my own. Meaning our plight, while we as humans are, can fluctuate between the elder and younger brother, and probably more often than not, as we become more involved in the way of Jesus, we'll, we'll veer towards the elder brother's tendencies. The goal is to become like the Father, to become like God, to become like the person who welcomes the lost and pleads for people to come in, both the ones who are already right here in the church doors and saying, come in, come downstairs to the feast, not metaphorically speaking, right? I'm not saying if you don't come down to after church lunch, you're out. Like, that's not what I'm saying. Um, but metaphorically speaking. But similarly, or come in, those who are deemed outside of the moral acceptable, morally acceptable realm for cultural Christianity. Saying, no, our, our hope is to aspire to godliness, to be like God. And so the forgiving sin components, I'm just going to read them. Um, again, it's in your bulletin, but I think it's helpful. It says, first one, specify important introductory details about the sin you have suffered. I mean, if you're hurt by someone, and this is key, I, I've done this recently, even in a case where someone hasn't sought forgiveness. Um, sometimes this is key. We walk this through in a session personally where you can do this on your own knowing, hey, they may never seek your forgiveness. They may not know you've hurt them, they've hurt you. But this is how we forgive beautifully. Similarly, number two, what name does God give the sin? You see how they're kind of the reverse. Number three, what emotion, desire, wrong belief, complex govern the person who sinned against you? Along with that, what emotions do you think were governing the person? What's sinful? You, you see how you're doing basically the reverse side, but it's helping you come to grips um, and seek restoration seek wholeness, seek resurrection life in your own heart and mind at this state. How did the sin damage or hurt you? What was the pain like? Often in the church, we kind of like downplay and we're like, oh, like it's okay, take the hurt. And I was, no, your hurt is real. Man, if you've been grieved by someone, that's real. We don't need to be, it's not like super Jesus-y to be like, hey, no, that didn't hurt me. Like, 
No, we, we are humans made in God's image. That's, I mean, we have to seek forgiveness to God. We too, made in God's image, as his image bearers, are emotional beings. And so sometimes when we're hurt, when we're grieved, we have to walk through this process too. Otherwise, we become cold souls. Our emotions can get turned off. Number five, it continues, how did it hurt the person who sinned against you? How did their sin hurt them? That's huge. Because when someone sins against you, yeah, it doesn't just hurt you. It's, it's grieving them. It's hurting them, too. They just may not be cognizant of it. God may not have given them that understanding yet. Number six, how did the sin hurt God? Taking it to the chief person who is really being sinned against? Number seven, did the sin require Jesus to die? Yes, it did. But again, you're walking through some of these obvious steps, but it's helping you come to grips, walk through, and it's helping in this time, the kettle, the temperature is going down from boiling. It might still be warm, hopefully getting milder, temperatures dying down. But no longer is it whistling in your soul with anger. Yeah, out of your angry soul, you know, it's just the temperature's milding. Milding? Sure. You get it. Uh, and then eight, what virtues does a person need to put on? Number nine, what sin lies beneath the surface of the sin committed against you? And ten, are you willing, able to forgive the person if the person does not ask you for forgiveness? Some of these are pretty self-explanatory and easy, seemingly. You're like, well, duh. But no, when you're in that place of being grieved, when you really take that time to forgive someone, walk through that process in your heart with God, um, as you start asking those questions or journaling or whatever, it's a little harder. It's a little more difficult as we um, peel away the layers that we've put around our true self, around our emotions that we felt. Well, I told you this was going to be a little different because um, it's kind of hard to wrap this up sermony. But uh, as we wrap up, the question we want to ask is where are we in the parable? Can you see yourself in it? Can you see yourself in it in this season of life? Are you able to find your place? Are you like the younger brother, running, overtly turning away from God, doing things you know are dishonorable to God, harmful to yourself, to other people, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually, mentally? They're getting in the way of you and God or you and his people, you and loving all people. Is it keeping you out of the party? And that's where you turn to the elder brother. Are you self-righteous? Are you prideful? Is, it, is this keeping you out of the party? Because you see other people and you're like, how can they be, you know, you're looking at them and you're look, when you're looking at them, they're not on the same level. You're looking down at them. You think more highly of yourself looking down on those who resemble the younger brother. Similarly, finding ways to justify your place, why I belong here. And it's not because of that. It's because of whatever you've done in your week or your year or your life. If that's us, it's helpful to know. But we have to be honest with ourselves. We also need to plead with the Spirit to help us see that in ourselves, Are we coming here on the basis of that? 
or our own profiles, our own accolades? And are we only doing it just to get the good life, the uh, using God for his stuff, using it as a get-out-of-jail-free card, as a get-out-of-hell-free card? Don't come to God because hell sounds bad. Come to God because he's God. He's your maker. He knows you. Don't come to him out of fear that of what? If I don't come to him, that's, that's not love. That's just help. But no, come to him because, man, he's better. He's good. He's your maker. He's your father. You were made in his image. You were made to know him. You were made to be loved by him. In him there is fullness of life, hope, joy. A byproduct, yes, is escaping that separation, but it's not the reason to come to him. And hopefully, as Henry Nouwen encouraged us, and as he started coming to, as we understand where we tend to be, the younger or the elder, we can start seeing and owning, whether it be together, horizontally, where we fall short and need to find places of confession and avenues of that, places after, like we do in this last song, time to confess to God or to one another if we need to. Uh, but then, yeah, confess vertically as well, owning that, seeking forgiveness, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive. But as we do that, we begin to see ourselves relating with the Father more. As we do that individually and together as LifeBridge, we become more and more like the Father, throwing massive celebrations for life turned around. And we have done that. We have. But we ought to continue doing that. And not wondering, why didn't we get our party? But no, man, praise God that new life is here. And that's it. Not, where's my party? Where's my show? No. Man, praise God. Praise God that people are finding new life in our broken community and world. As Nowen said, and I, and I hope this, as we continue to follow the way of Jesus, to seek after him by the power of his spirit, hopefully we can come to this realization. I now see that the hands that forgive, console, heal, and offer a festive meal must become my own. May they become our own. May they become ours individually and as LifeBridge. I'm going to invite the band up, and uh, I'm going to pray for us. As we um, enter in this time of just responsive worship, just a reminder of, of what we do in this time. We'll put up on the screen, I believe. Uh, yeah, there's just an opportunity for you. Uh, you may not be able to walk through all this, but an opportunity for, uh, to own things before God or to even ask God, hey, I, I know something's not right here. I've, been, I've, been, uh, I've had misplaced affections. Um, I've sought things in avenues of life of this world that just aren't the way you ordered it to be, whether it be through younger brother ways or elder brother ways, through my own self-righteousness. Man, own those, but just ask God, man, help me this week or, the, or this month or help me, lead me in this time. It's not something where it's just like a couple minutes, boom. It could be a season of just figuring this out and God, God's spirit opening the eyes of our hearts to see that. So pray, pray.
sit with God, and then we sing, we sing out, we respond to God because, man, he did the work. We don't have to do the work like the elder or the younger brother. Jesus did the work. He did the work. He's the true, he's the true elder and younger brother, but he did it in a way that was not um, self-gratifying, but, but truly humil- uh, humble. And then lastly, um, yeah, there's a time of giving, and I be, you know we've got our baskets on the table, but also if you guys are unfamiliar, we do have our Church Center app if you are more interested uh, in digital giving. If you need help with that, you can always ask me after service. Um, grateful for this time, guys. Thank you. Let me pray for us, and then we will wrap up our service. Father, thank you for uh, this parable. Thank you for the people you've placed personally in my life that have um, God helped me, uh, give me just a snapshot of insight into my place before you uh, and it not being on the grounds of my own work. Um, but God, it's, it's solely on the basis of Jesus, solely on the basis of what he did, the life he lived, the death he died, the resurrection, you gave him, the newness of life you gave him. And God, uh, thank you for just the, the, the various teachers that you've given us to help us understand um, how to confess to one another and how to forgive one another uh, as you have taught us to. As we at LifeBridge become a place, and as we are always people becoming like those who you've called us to be, May we continue to become a people who are um, just throwing the parties for those people, God. Throwing the parties for new life. And may we be the people that are calling both the elders and the youngers in. The elder brothers and the younger brothers. But help us all move wherever we tend to veer towards, elder or younger. Help us, as we follow you, Jesus, become more and more like you, Father. May we be the ones who are welcoming, comforting, applauding, cheering on, calling, saying, come to something better. It's not me, it's, it's my Father, it's my God, but come, come join us. Come see new life, come be a part of an experience, new life. So as we approach Holy Week, may we continue these next couple weeks, Holy Spirit, Just guide us, give us time and space on our own and with each other to grow in these areas, to put off our old selves, to open up space for you, to declutter our lives that we might be filled with you. We ask all these things in your name, Jesus, through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. Well, we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship 
is to be experienced weekly in person within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.